Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. With me today is literary scholar Nicholas Allen, who is the Baldwin Professor in the Humanities at the University of Georgia. His latest book is Ireland, Literature, and the Coast, Sea Tangled. Hi, Nicholas. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Mike. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So you really have this um, absolutely wonderful book that you've um, published recently. The title is Ireland, Literature, and the Coast, Sea Tangled. Um, and it's an investigation of, of those themes, a critical perspective on Irish literature. Um, maybe one way to kind of get us into the subject is to interrogate the title a little bit. Um, sea Tangled is a, it's an incredibly beautiful and, and evocative word. Um, also, one thing that's interesting, I don't know, um, uh, it, it comes after the colon. Um, and, and sometimes maybe the convention would be to put the cool word first and then the more descriptive <laughs> words later. So I'm wondering just about that, the, that, that word sea tangled and, um, and is that telling us, is that, does that relate to Ireland literature in the coast or, you know, kind of what's going on with these, with these words that we see right on the, the front cover of the, of the manuscript? Sure, and uh, thank you for noticing it. Actually, it's kind of a funny story about it. it. Really, should be called "Sea Tangled Colon" and then whatever it is afterwards. But they were worried in the press that in digital searches it would get mixed up with uh, books about sea angling, uh, which actually I thought would be a good thing and might indeed boost sales. <laughs> so it might disappoint readers. I think if you were looking for any technical merits, so that's the reason for that. But yes, so, uh, sea tangled. But the word—it's an interesting one. It pops up in Joyce, and it really came into my mind whenever Stephen is walking along the beach and. Thinking about his future, this is Stephen Dedalus in a portrait of the artist as a young man and wondering what he's going to make of himself. And so he walks out to the verge of the city and Dublin, as we sometimes forget. And part of that forgetting is the reason to write the book was a great maritime city of the 18th to 19th century. And he sees these sea tangles, which are little shreds of seaweed in the water. Hmm. And so I just thought about that moment, you know, the moment of takeoff, of lift. Uh, Stephen Dedalus is compared to someone who flies too high, lands, of course, drowns. But uh, thinking about those metaphors of flight, metaphors of motion, and also I think also those ideas of remains somehow, that he was looking at these bits and pieces of things and trying mm. to put them together. And I suppose that's been the story of so much of 20th century literature, and certainly being what I've responded to. And funny little hidden American aspect in that I've often thought as I went home, in the summers to Ireland, or I like to swim as much as I, I can because I live too far away from the sea here in America. Mm. But it really reminded me the color of all that broken rock and bladder of the fall in the American Northeast. So there's a funny uh, sense of tapestry and color and time that you carry in your imagination that maybe registers in books that mightn't be legible to a reader as a direct thing, but it gives it a kind of sensation and experience that I try to include in the writing. Hmm. Yeah, it's really, and, and now, it's a, it's a beautiful image and, um, and it has, yeah, all these really wonderful connotations to it. Now, you know, when I, just as a, as a naive reader, um, when I kind of saw that word on the, on the, on the front, um, what, what kind of struck me was this idea of, and again, with the Ireland literature and the coast together, that these things were entangled with each other in some mm -hmm. kind of meaningful um, way. And in, in some sense, it's like, well, of course, you know, there's Ireland and literature is important to Ireland. <laughs> Ireland is important to literature. And, yeah. you know, there's a big coast that surrounds the island. But 
but it, but it, there's lots of non-obvious ways that these things are related to each other. So what is the, you know, I, so I don't know if that's, um, if that, if that notion yeah, no, of tangled is, is sensible. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's all trying to stretch. What I was trying to do was stretch forward towards a different language of description that wasn't bounded by land and territoriality. Because I grew up in Belfast in the north of Ireland, in a very contested place. And although I am a citizen of the Irish Republic now, I certainly wasn't brought up in that world. And I've been very conscious of the ways in which things overlap. They seep into each other. And how could you not read Joyce and Yeats and wonder that, you know, the literature tells you about you know, holding many different kinds of realities in mind at once. And so if you mix that kind of modernist perspective of multiplicity with the historical reality of interconnectedness, it seemed to me that wateriness, perviousness, had not yet quite found its way into the historical, the cultural, or the literary representation of the island. I think you know, Ireland sometimes is forgotten in a sense that it is a place bounded by and washed over by water, partly an inheritance, I think, of its long imperial attachments were to have a national sovereignty was to have a sense of independence and freedom. And then creating that sense of an island apart, we thought perhaps a little bit too much about looking inland and looking offshore, which I think for a long time was associated with migration, with leaving, with famine, with domination, and trying to find a way to describe more flexible understandings of being in the world, in the literature. Well, being true also to those complex historical interactions was one of the reasons to write the book. Hmm. Now, so the the way that book proceeds is, you know, there's some kind of thematic discussion, but the the core chapters of the book are close readings of of authors, in particular, uh, authors and other artists, and and um, and particular works. So one one question that I have, and I suspect others do too, is kind of when you, when you do a project like this, it's not an anthology, right? This isn't intended to be a complete history of Irish literature or Irish, which would be very long, um, or, or even within a particular period of, you know, whatever, 20th century or something. And so, um, so, so how do you, how do you collect, how do you decide who's in and who's out in some sense of, of, of a project like this? It's a great question. And would you believe that this was meant to be just a short book that started out <laughs> of a particular obsession, which was, you know, literally actually coming back to America a second time, looking at the map. We used to live in Chapel Hill and thinking that Athens was about as far away from the coast as Chapel Hill was, so we would get to the sea a lot. Uh-huh. It's not quite the same. <laughs> and so that sense of, you know, missing the ozone, that mm. um, being too landed was something that was, I think, drove a kind of obsession. And of course, with the changes over the world over the last five years and all of our living circumstances changed too. That was in there. And thinking too, I suppose, starting with books and texts and moments that went lodged in my imagination. And sometimes, you know, it might take you a couple of years to write a book, but the writing of the book might be years in your head. Mm-hmm. A long time ago when I first came to America, teaching James Joyce's short story, The Dead, and it ends with a snowstorm. And a student asking me, quite rightly, does it snow a lot in Ireland? And I thought, well, actually, you know, it doesn't. Hardly ever snows at all. And so it made me think about water cycles and about the way in which the weather is used to represent psychologies and states of mind and the way that that might have a particular kind of Atlantic perspective. And then I had lived for a couple of years in Galway, where I taught in the university there, and I became a great friend, or at least a great admirer 
and a friend of a writer called Tim Robinson, who created these maps and accounts and stories in the Irish and the English languages of the Western coast that I thought were just really magnificent and opened a whole portal of place and understanding and description for me that I'd never had before. So they were the kind of the larger frames and then trying to think about a chronology. And so I started, you know, you think late 19th century, there's a wonderful early novel by Yeats that nobody ever really paid much attention to called John Sherman, which is about a shipping clerk who moves to London and thinking about Joyce. And then not just wanting to write a book about the canonical things. Mm -hmm. I've always been very interested in visual arts and I've always been very interested in literary magazines. So trying to weave together that broad context to give the narrative a kind of forward momentum while taking stops to take time with close readings. And the poet, Elena Quillanon, who actually, for a brief time when I was a graduate student in Trinity College Dublin, was the head of department. I often think it's comical that this great genius, I think, of the 20th, 30, 21st century Irish poetry was someone I used to go to to ask for money to go to conferences. <laughs> smile at me benignly and say yes. But she was a really lovely, beautiful, powerful, incredible presence. And so that sense of intersection between the historical works that you would come across and the canon of Irish literature and then trying to adjust and rewrite that through the perspective of these other tangled sea places was what brought it along. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so as you mentioned, the, you know, the, the story of the, the snow and the student and, and, you know, kind of the, what, what brought you into the project? I mean, one of the, one of the, the messages, I guess, uh, that I took away from the, from the project, from the book is this, obviously there's a, there's a tangled and complicated relationship between, between all these ideas and images and how they work together. But, um, but I kind of, I'm a law professor. I tend to categorize, <laughs> categorize yeah, things. So the categories that I, the categories that I kind of came up with were that, you know these these images and um, seem to play two kinds of roles. Things like sea, the sea and coast and water. Yeah. That there's yeah. this role of metaphor as a you know that we can that we can use the coast as a liminal space between the real and the imaginary, or a metaphor for escape, or a metaphor for colonial influence. And so there's this kind of met metaphoric role that um, that water or coasts, um, the liquid, can have in within the literary landscape. And then there's kind of like the quote unquote real influence of um, of the coast or the maritime economy mm -hmm. or the built environment of of docks and the, you know that affects what people do for a living and it affects their sensory environment and it affects um, their economic reality and and so on. Um, and both of these are are present in in the book um, as you describe. They're present in the literature and they're present in the readings that you offer. Um, was there one of these that drew you more into the subject than the other? I mean, one question is just, is that a legitimate <laughs> way of thinking yeah, about things? Is. But then also like, is there one that drew you in or is, is, is it kind of, kind of both together that, that, that drew your interest in this, in this, in this idea, way of sure. thinking about this? No, thank you. Uh, it is a legitimate way to think it, but I would say it's also to some degree a foundational or a preliminary one. I think I understand these interactions as being more on a spectrum. And that you see different reflections at different points on that spectrum. I often think about the word constellation when I'm writing, and really what you're trying to do are finding these points of refraction, really, of hidden or buried or forgotten or neglected histories, words, thoughts, ideas. 
that I think literature is almost like a kind of radio star or some kind of frequency emitter that the critic can tune into, that they might think in a kind of almost, um, I don't mean to be grand and compare myself to a physicist, but physics is also a problem of language and the imagination as it is of measurement and observation. But trying to think about these broken narratives and patterns that exist over historical time and are represented in different kinds of cultural artefacts. And when you can make them reflect upon each other, what different impression of the world would you have afterwards? So I suppose I don't see there's such a distance between the real, the harbours, the piers, the maritime forts, the great entrance to Cork Harbour, where you can see gun emplacements on the other side that go back many centuries. What we now take to be places of pleasure and leisure in Cork Harbour that were once centres of global incarceration. I don't think those real things are detached from the imagination or from words. And I'm glad to talk with you about the idea of sea tangled and vocabulary and language, because I think they're real and powerful things that have real and powerful effects on people's experiences. And I suppose just the last kind of closing thought about it is that, you know, the, the provocative part to the book, I mean, it is an account of the past in one sense, but I suppose it also asks you if we were to think of things like this, would we be able to categorize our present in the same way? Would we read differently? And I think even further than that, a question that we don't always ask as critics of ourselves, would we as critics write differently? And people have responded to that in different ways. People with different training and background sometimes don't appreciate that question. Sometimes they don't like the writing. Sometimes they wonder, is this a fit thing to do? Should you categorize more and make metaphor less? But I think for myself, you know, and I thought this as I've gone along in my own career, such as it is, that there's a, if there's a freedom to this education, and I'm the first in the first generation of my family to go to university, if there's something different in this, apart from the acquiring of knowledge or the, you know, the burdening of oneself with others learning, is there an individual way to express yourself within it? Well, I think that that is also connected to this question of liquidity of transition, of perviousness, of a certain kind of openness to the world that might allow us to access conditions of empathy and understanding in the literature that would set us to think again about what Ireland, literature, cultural history might be. That seems very important in this time of environmental collapse to try and think about things differently in that way. I know our rising generations of students do, so certainly we should do so too. So, so, so that's a really interesting, um, that's a really interesting set of ideas. And so maybe, maybe to, um, explore that a little bit further, we could take, um, something that is both a concrete reality and a metaphor and, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and every, um, point on the spectrum, something like, that you kind of, um, return to and the authors and, and the artists in your book return to is, is a, is the coast, the and there's lots of different, you know, a coast is a physical reality, an ecosystem, a, a scientist, you know, an ecologist can study yep. coastal ecosystems. It's an economic, it's a place of economic activity. Um, it's a, a particular kind of landscape that generates um, uh, sens sensations, right? That when you moved inland to, <laughs> to yeah, Athens, yeah. It's, it, you yeah. missed the coast, right? You, you know, part of that is the is the sights and the smells and the experiences. Um, but then there is also in, in several of the works that you describe, there's a, there's a metaphorical characteristic to the coast. And of course, these things, as you know, they're entangled, right? Where you, mm -hmm. when you experience the physicality, 
that's not a, you know, it's the, the, that's not something that can't be read or it's not something that doesn't involve imagination. I mean, when you're standing on the coast and staring off, a real person standing on the coast, staring off in the distance, there are, when they do that physical activity, it's triggering all kinds of associations, cultural associations, all kinds of meaning, right, that are happening. And so, 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 what are some of the uh, the ways that coast, as as an idea, as a physical thing, as a as a metaphor, um, works its way into uh, some of the the works that you describe in the uh, in the book? It's such an interesting question because it, you know, it's so motive and changes. And I'm thinking, you know, at one end of the 20th century, at the beginning, it's a place for people looking at because it suggests a certain kind of leaving by sea. It has a kind of melancholy attached to it, a far perspective. And then you get to the end of the 20th century and you have someone like Shimasini coming out in the evening time, or maybe even Anne Enright looking out and thinking about planes flying out from Dublin. And that is a kind of privilege of leaving in return that perhaps wasn't there in earlier years, even though it's also a kind of carbon cost that has increased exponentially in Ireland all the way across the 20th century right up to the present. And so I would say in that sense, it's always a mutable thing in the imaginative sense. And what you're maybe trying to do or what I was trying to do in a book like this was less to describe every single um, exhibition of these qualities at the coastal zone, but to think about practices. So, I mean, your question is a great one. Really what we're thinking about here are trying to describe almost genealogies of practice, or I sometimes think about it in terms of declension, almost like a verb. Could you give broad enough forms that shaped over time that could include all of these diversities of reality with these literary and artistic and sonic apparitions that are so important to our cultural mediation and imagination of landscapes we often come into after they've always been formed. You're making me think, you know, when I first went to Galway and people would tell me, you know, I love the Western seaboard. It's it's so beautiful. It's this place. And I kept thinking, goodness, this is like a place someone described 100 years ago, but everybody has left. Yes, Singh was here. Yeats, Yeats was here. But now all I can see is a concrete car park in the rain on a November morning in the dark. You know, like, where where has where that world gone? Mm-hmm. And of course, it was a stupid perception of mine and partly to do with a sense of transition between two places that I never managed very well. But going out then to somewhere like Rhinestone, Tim Robinson would have these salons in his house at the end of the pier there. People would come from all over the world, but they were no important, more important than local people and fishermen and people who had their livelihood in the local village of the surrounds. The people who worked in Rhinestone Bog or travelled through it. But the sense of a community of conversation in a very particular place that had very specific experiences, but that could also have echoes with other places. And I suppose that's the other part of my writing a work that comes back to your question about how we describe all of these multiplicities of experiences. I'm not so interested in saying that one thing is like another, but if I am thinking about a kind of declension, if I use that word about verbs, I'm thinking about declensions in different languages in which certain words sound like each other, but they're not necessarily the same. And trying to keep that open space where you're describing something without containing it seems very important to me. And again, seems like another kind of practice of self-liberation, but also in a way of honesty, that how can we write about the post-imperial or the post-colonial or the environmental or the blue humanities if we can't find a language to describe the sensation of something without colonizing it ourselves? 
Yeah, one of the things I think is an interesting feature, and this is very different from the kind of work that I, that I normally yeah. read, oh. is um, I think one would be hard-pressed to, and this could be wrong, so you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it would be difficult to articulate an argument that runs through the book other than something very, very general and, and you know, that, that something like this is an interesting way to read the literature or something. And it's more of, um, as you were just describing, it's a, it's a series of, of connections, of linkages, of holding different things up to, you know, near each other and kind of through a particular lens. Um, now, so I guess my first question is, is, is that wrong? Do you, do you see that there, there is a, you know, an argument that you're, that you're trying to make, um, other than the, the argument of this is a valuable way to do things, I guess, or this is a useful, um, or productive way of, of reading this, this literature. Um, so I guess that's one, that's, that's just a kind of a, a almost like a method question or a question about mm -hmm. the content of the, of the work as you see it. Yeah, I, and I, I think that even to say that is a large claim to make. You know, I, I don't think I've ever really been interested in that someone would want to read a book that you would write about other books because you're making an argument about right. the other books. Mm -hmm. I think people, I would like, for me anyway, I'm more inclined to read books that make me feel something, that see something, make a connection with books. It seems to me more the sense of a criticism as a kind of rhythm and practice that allows in the reader a space for understanding and connection that they might not otherwise have had. Now, having said that, I think I've only really begun to reach that point. And, it, you know, it's one that I continue with in self-reflection. But what I really felt when I wrote this book that was different from all the other books that I've ever written before was I kind of felt like I had a knowledge and a breadth of experience that there's a subtlety in the book. My friend, the critic Lucy Collins, picked up on it. And actually, it was the most flattering thing that anybody said about it was that it was subtle because actually there were words that I use in there, encumbrance, that have a kind of historical freight that make a gesture to another kind of historical discourse. I don't put it in a footnote. I don't make it explicit. But within the rhythm of language of the criticism, there are ways that people from other disciplines and backgrounds with formal professional knowledge can follow those cues and think, oh, I see what's being suggested here. And then people who don't necessarily have that specific knowledge can still appreciate the breadth of language being used in description and make a wall for the kind of an implicit set of contexts or references that might make them think or see things differently anyway. And in a way, I suppose that's a little bit like teaching in class that you have this opportunity to expand the conversation and that if everyone didn't think the same, but if people can broaden their horizons of perspective and understanding, then at least the decisions they make afterwards are going to be informed by different information and feeling than they had before that. Yeah. I mean, one, this is just as, as you were speaking, one thought that kind of occurred is, is the distinction between <laughs> And this is a very silly one, but just to, um, yeah. you know, just to simplify things a little bit is, is the kind of the idea that what you've offered is like a decoder key, right? That, that the book is a way of reinterpreting or decoding uh, kind of latent characteristics in this literature. I suspect you would resist that characterization, <laughs> um, that there, that there was a, that, that there was a code that was there and that you're extracting. 
Another um, metaphor, I guess, um, for the practice would be something more like, and so this is something, well, I'd be, again, just curious on your thoughts of the, of the, the this is almost a kind of meta question about literary criticism, but and really thinking about your work and in your work in this particular book is, is that the literature serves as a kind of raw material for um, even that, maybe we don't love that, but just to go with it as a kind of, as a input into a, your own creative process of establishing links and drawing connections and, and building a new artifact that um, is related in some sense to um, to the works that you're reading, but um, isn't presenting itself as a like a definitive reading or the correct reading or anything else in the same way that an artist wouldn't say that they're <laughs> a painting yeah, is the yeah, correct yeah, way of applying yeah, paint yeah, to a yeah. uh, piece of canvas. Yeah, I think in a way these are also questions of where the self resides in the text too, you know, both as the reader and as the writer of versions of the text that you share with other people in relation to other texts. But to come back to the decoder, I mean, if I had that Dan Brown aspect, I'd certainly have sold mm -hmm. uh, many more books. So I can only imagine the puzzlement of people who would pick up uh, Sea Tangled as, a, you know, as the, the last book in the Da Vinci Code <laughs> sequence. But... Um, and in a way, I sort of, I think I would come back again to try and get away. And actually, I actually think it's a fundamental point about the book from those questions of linear sequence, that there is a path to be followed in this, that there is one single argument. I mean, I suppose the one single argument is that we should attend to the imagery of water in literary texts. Mm -hmm. It turns out that it's actually an extremely powerful way to understand built space and human experience in a late imperial and post-colonial culture. So that's, you know, an argument in that sense, mm -hmm. but making that visible or imaginable is not just a question of accounting for all of these different, you know, um, formations across time. But if you could give a sense of their cultural presence through a drawing of the shape around them, as much as you could of their filling in their colors and their backgrounds and everything else, that you allow space then for readers to draw their own conclusions about books that they will have read and then to have a kind of recognition of the text of what it is that you're trying to say. And I think that to me seems an important way to make people, not to make people, but to invite people to help you create something in the work of criticism that makes them think differently about literature. And really that question about what literature is, is also about human perception, is about empathy, is about community, is about solidarity. And that's really the kind of impression I think I'm trying to make whenever I write. But I mean, I do so at all modesty as well. I mean, I don't think of it as being an artwork. I had a very peculiar and welcome experience in the spring of being invited to the Irish Pavilion of the Venice Biennale. And they asked me to write a little essay about the coast in Ireland that became a kind of a prose poem. And they asked me to read it at this opening vernissage. And I looked out at this, and I'm well used to speaking in front of people, but I thought, I looked up and thought, oh my God, this is the first time I've ever had to read anything. Mm. It's just me, as opposed to me talking about what someone else wrote. And just for that moment, that was a kind of, oh, that's that's a funny, you know, it's a little transition mm -hmm. to make. So it's a, yeah, again, I suppose perhaps in a spectrum, kind of critical writing, I mean, critical writing has to be moving to make people read it. 
And there are forms of it that follow very established procedures and gestures and genealogies and lineages. And I'm aware of those things. And in writing the way that I do, it is not a denial of their power or appropriateness, but I just, for myself, I have wanted to find a different space and freedom in my writing that will express a different understanding of the texts that's legible to those more formal traditions, but is not the same as them. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, I've, I've always experienced literary criticism as, as itself a kind of a create, it's certainly a from the outsider's perspective, it appears as a, as a creative act. I mean, a lot of things mm -hmm. are creative. Um, sure. Science is creative in a lot of ways. Um, uh, writing a mathematical proof is creative um, or constructing a mathematical proof is creative. But um, but it, I'm not sure what the, exactly the, the distinction I'm trying to make, but it does seem to be a, a particular kind of creative act. It's interesting that you would you would be disinclined to think of it as, as it's uh, like, as a lit as a work of literature itself, well, or, or maybe you, yeah, maybe that's not quite right. I think this is why I'm outing myself as an Ulster Protestant, where we, you know we were uh, discouraged from believing that we ever uh, uh, had imaginations. I see, <laughs> but yeah, I do. I mean, of course, I think it's creative. Absolutely, um, it's just a really interesting you know conversation to have about again the decades of reading and thinking and conversation and exchange and collaboration that goes into writing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I, I, actually I take your prompt seriously and I agree with you in the sense that we should all of us think more about the value of the creative work that we do as critics or thinkers or people who reflect on the world as it is or appears to be in any sense, because you know, so much conversation in the moment about universities and about value and especially about the place of the humanities and the arts more broadly. And where are we to be more, is confident the right word, but uh, consciousness, to be more conscious of ourselves as creative beings within a critical context, that there could be a different understanding of value. And I think even of teaching, of education, in public institutions especially, because, you know, it's very easy to talk about creative economy and not think about English literature, to think about history, to think about philosophy, to think about dance, to think about any of those things. And so, you know, maybe not the worst thing in the world to think about better languages to describe ourselves as creative makers as well as critical thinkers. Yeah, it's really, it's just it's the last few things you were mentioning is the, you know, we, there's talk of the creative economy or creatives there's you know, right mm -hmm. that's a, a, an economic role and it's somehow removed from literature and dance and no, no. I mean, these are these are i mean the core of what traditionally we kind of thought of as as creative as as what it the definition of creative in some sense so i don't know if you have any thoughts about uh, that as an economic proposition or what you know just curious to hear your thoughts on it yeah i do think that there's a kind of a long but intensely recent history of capital colonization of specific terms which are extracted from the public commons to become subjects of exploitation and which then gives some people a kind of hesitation about their retransition back into more equitable forms. And I think at the root of much of what I do in general and I think even in my writing I'm thinking about those things and thinking about the ways in which, you know, freedom matters 
Um, but freedom can mean many things. And even if it's the freedom to think, feel, see, or experience another person's perhaps very different representation of the world in ways that you may or may not agree with, in ways that may or may not change your own attitudes to life, but may also equip you with responses to challenges in life that you have not yet experienced. I think that that's a very powerful thing, and I think that that's what the humanities and the arts can do in general, and certainly what they can do in university education. And, you know, something I argue for a lot in many different contexts, and I suppose what you're seeing at one end of the spectrum is this kind of book that I've written, but in my day-to-day -day life I also do that in different forms too. But, you know, it's important work to do. It's work that's done very well at the University of Virginia, and, uh, you know, the work that many people around the world are thinking about, I think. You know, one of the, as we're thinking broadly about this kind of humanities and, and, and criticism, one of the, the um, and it's like a cliche almost to say that the humanities, if, if someone wants to defend the humanities against whatever the attacks are, I mean, there's, of course, there's a big question about where those attacks come from and how they're motivated and whatever else. But just, just for the moment, one of the things folks will say or a catchphrase would be um, that we, 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 we promote critical thinking critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting phrase. And I think it's uh, interesting to compare the notion of critical in that phrase as we are, as it is commonly used in say American political discourse with the way that you're describing, I think many yeah, of yeah. the, of the, of the goals of the way you read and discuss things that you've read, where you talk a lot about kind of connection and you were just mentioning kind of uh, perspective taking or learning about other folks, even if you don't agree with them, um, empathy, empathy, compassion, those kinds of, um, those kinds of skills or those kinds of experiences. And that I think is very different from what we typically associate with kind of quote unquote critical thinking, which is, uh, you know, skepticism or, um, you know, uh, uh, analysis in a particular way, breaking things down, yeah. understanding the component parts. Um, so yeah, so I'd just be curious about, um, about your thoughts on the relationship between criticism as you think of it and this other notion of critical thinking that's current in our culture and, and, um, and just, you know, how it is that we have these two very different uh, modalities that, that fall under the same word. Sure, and I may see things slightly askew, uh, kind of being a, a foreigner twice in the sense of, you know, coming from the north of Ireland and going to Dublin and really feeling liberated there. And then having lived in two different uh, times in my life very happily in the American South, uh, but again, hearing kind of echoes of some of the disturbances that were there in my earlier life too. It's a place that often seems strangely familiar to me and not always for the best reasons, much as I love it. But I suppose you can hear criticism as deconstruction, as the taking apart of analysis, as the breaking down, which I suppose in the language of, you know, kind of uh, capital is a sort of negative thing. You know, you're, someone has built this car for you and now you want to tell me that it's badly engineered, badly designed, you don't like the colour. I mean, that kind of is how people project an understanding of the humanities. Look what we did for you. Is it never enough? Hmm. Whereas, in fact, you know, criticism is a practice of informed empathy and understanding, a kind of an amplification, a connection, a networking. And they are, interestingly, words that coincide with forms of modern life 
social media comes to mind in which terms like that have themselves been abrogated for very particular capital and informationistic purposes. And I'm struck, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, about coastal works earlier is that, you know, this understanding of the coast as a marginal space has certainly been an Irish and also in forms of indigenous American history, a place that people who have been pushed to the margins, who have been, who suffered the very most, have been pushed out to the edges and know the liminal as a place of last survival before expulsion or removal. And so... In looking at the coast as a place of looking out, it's also always awareness of the deeply fractured history in which we live day to day in Ireland and in the United States. And while I don't think of the humanities or literature or criticism as a work of repair, if it is a work of awareness and a work of heightened self-consciousness, it does invite us to ask think questions differently of the present and of the kind of future that we like to build that might be more inclusive, that might be more representative, that might be more empathetic. And of course, that can be a very challenging idea, but there are many ways to carry out that practice. It can begin in the reading of a poem. It can begin in a student introducing a writer who comes to campus. It can begin with a graduate student creating a film or an artwork or a photograph of one fracture of their experience. Who knows what career they're going to end up going to have? Who knows what their relationships with their family and friends will be? But you'd like to think again, and I go back to that point of being in the first generation of people who went to university, if there was anything in this experience of life that I have had, surely some sense of self-discovery has to be critical because it was denied to all of those generations before who lived in poverty, who lived in the extremity of having very little or nothing and having no horizon of expectation. And I do, and I've always felt that sense of responsibility, not to speak for anyone, but to speak as myself, to be aware, to try and learn as I go along for all my mistakes, and to find a space that I can think is, how would you say, uh, representative of, at least that they might, if they couldn't understand it, at least they wouldn't think that I had let anyone down. I've always felt that. So there's lots of different ways we could kind of take the, the conversation, but I, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned just a kind of a, a second ago about um, the relationship between Ireland that, that you were describing and the South where you live now and, and the, um, the coast as a, um, the role that coasts have played for, um, um, for people who have been, you know, kicked off their land or who have, um, you know, faced kind of similar, you know, difficulties so the book is about Irish literature. The, the, that's an interesting even question to define. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, in, there's definitional questions of how you draw a boundary around something like that if you, if you wanted to. Um, but, um, but, but you mentioned these resonances with other, um, uh, you know, with, with, with other cultures, with other literatures. And obviously water is a, is a human universal. There's no people where there's not water. Obviously there's wetter places and drier places, um, but even dry places are defined by water. It's just the lack thereof. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious how you see your, your project and, and maybe Irish literature um, within this global context. You mentioned the, the Blue Humanities, mm -hmm. uh, which is a movement within, within the humanities to think in, in certain ways um, when you're engaging in humanistic projects. There's, there's the Environmental Humanities, which is a 
a project within yep. the humanities. So maybe maybe you could just place the, this work within, you know, either the, the, where it has resonances and and how something like the an idea like the blue humanities or the environmental humanities is a is a is a courier of resonance or exactly mm-hmm. what it means when when we think about these kind of cross cutting ways of, of reading and, and and criticizing and thinking. Yeah, well, you know, I've been very lucky. I think when I think about it now, and I, I hadn't really thought about it like this until we we're talking today, Mike, but that. I've been very lucky to do my work and to come to whatever consciousness I have at a moment whenever two things have intersected. So the publicly engaged humanities has been a movement now. I mean, it's always been there, but perhaps in the last 10, 20 years has become more formalized, better connected, more networked, more visible. And at the same time, that grit and deep tradition, which goes back until at least the middle of the 20th century, the environmental humanities has grown into this awareness and appreciation of the oceans, of the rivers, of estuaries, coasts, into what people might call the blue humanities, thinking about water on the largest scale. And the really wonderful thing about those two fields coming up is not just that they're fascinating and interesting and full of rich questions that you could spend many lifetimes thinking about, but they also require the creation of new networks of association. And so I feel so blessed to use that American term, which I never thought I would ever say, to have been part of two social networks that have overlapped and really given me a sense of community that even though, you know, I'm here in Athens, Georgia, writing about Ireland, and there is a definition in the title between Ireland and Irish literature. I put a comma in there for a purpose. Hmm. But this sense of immediate interest, of energy, and also of community, which is something that you don't always get in the very small field of Irish literature, a certain room to breathe for people to say, oh, really, you write about that? You write about that? Tell me more about it. You know, I've been to long-term environmental research stations across the United States with marine scientists. I've talked with people who go down in deep-sea submersibles to try and follow the flow of oil, which has come out from pollution in the Gulf of Mexico. And listening to their excitement about what they do and having them be interested in something as obscure as what I do has been a very energizing thing. And so I suppose, you know, not to answer your question directly, but to give you a different sense of possibility, perhaps, of where all this leads, it's very easy in these conversations about the humanities and arts, and it is a dreadful reality for people who are suffering under cuts and job losses and student numbers going down, and I don't for a second want to diminish any of that, but there is still the energy within institutions, public and private, to put together forms of knowledge and experience in new connections and networks that I think are truly radical and have the power to change how we think about who we are and what we do. And that's kind of what gives me the enthusiasm and excitement about all this. I mean, in one sense, I might be writing about a very specific part, about a very specific pool that perhaps not too many people who aren't specific know about, but those deep structures in the poem, would you say they're molecular? Would you say they're microorganisms of their cells in cultural form? And I find so often here in America, and it's actually one thing I find really freeing about the place and I love working in the public university system. There's such a broad capacity of thought that if you can make these kind of neural-like connections between them, you can really change how people perceive and talk about the very largest questions that face us. Hmm. Well, just you know, kind of fo- following on the um, this, this this kind of style of of uh, of, of thinking, I, 
I wanted to maybe fold back into an <laughs> earlier um, uh, uh, point of entry, which was was the title of the book you mentioned, um, Ireland Literature and the Coast, that you, you put a comma in there for a reason. So I wanted to, to return to that for a second. So, right, the title is an Irish Literature and the Coast. The, t- the title is Ireland Literature and the Coast. And so, so that's, as you note, th- that's a meaningful distinction. Um, and so I guess just the qu- questions that immediately come to mind is, I mean, is, the, is, is, is there such a thing as Irish literature? Is the claim, is the idea that, you know, maybe that's a, a, an idea that requires complication. The idea of Ireland is obviously a very complex um, thing. It's a, it's a political mm-hmm. thing. It's a cultural thing. It's a, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real physical thing in the world. Um, obviously yep. literature is a very complicated thing. So, um, so yeah, so, so that choice about the, the comma and then the, the notion of Ireland that you're working with in the, um, in the title and in the, in the book. Um, yeah, just, I just want to invite some, some, some thoughts on that. Uh, I can hear all of your listeners who I've just brought around to thinking of criticism as being a positive, engaging thing now rolling their eyes <laughs> as they're listening and they're. AirPods walking their dogs while you and I talk about a comma, but commas. <laughs> hey, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer, law. you know, lawyers have yeah, to worry no, about commas. Is, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, so I, you can qualify something without saying that it doesn't exist. So I wanted in the book to give the impression that it is a set of sequences or impressions, I suppose in that sense, and I don't mean this in a negative way, it's impressionistic. It is not an account of all of Irish literature. It is not an argument for what Irish literature is or is not. I was really conscious. I was brought up in Belfast in an educator in a school where you could learn Russian, French, German, Latin, Greek, but you could not learn Mm -hmm. Irish. And that acknowledgement of Irish language literature not being in there seemed to be important. So that's partly the Ireland comma literature and the coast. And I suppose the other qualification about it all, which is, you know, sea tangled, looking at where the sea or the ocean meets the coast. I tried to keep myself relatively within a zone that didn't go too deep because I thought actually oceanic studies is a whole other thing. And perhaps the only bit where I cheated in that regard was the American part. I had a chapter in the middle, which slightly unbalanced the book in that it's about three male authors. And it gave the gender balance of the book a slightly askew sense of things, although there are actually many female writers, women writers, written about all through the book, especially in the literary journals. But still, I, in some senses, that chapter of the book, I thought many times should I have taken that out, the book would have been shorter, would have been more readable, but it was in a way a kind of bridge to my actual life in America, and it seemed slightly dishonest to leave it out. Hmm. So Ireland is a set of conditions in the book, a set of imaginable places, as opposed to the predicate of a national literature. And I think that that's important, and I know you've been thinking as you read the book, because we've talked about this before, but, you know, can you make a claim for an Irish literature that you couldn't for a German literature or an English literature or a French or a German? And I'm interested to say that literature in and of and about Ireland often engages with a set of specific historical experiences and questions that require particular attention. But that's not to say that those particular experiences and circumstances don't have echoes with other places. And it's also important to say that many Irish writers, I mean, if you think about the end of Ulysses, 
Joyce is thinking about not just Dublin, he's thinking about Trieste, he's thinking about Zurich. So there is something fundamentally global about our experiences and perhaps global is a word that's associated with empire and colony and going forward maybe a word that we might approach as planetary, a different kind of consciousness of other things and beings in the world that the sea is populated by many kinds of creatures and thinking about the blue humanities is again a kind of empathy that opens up to entirely different kinds of consciousness and attention that we still need new languages for. You know, the, the, and this this puts me in mind of um, other critical projects that have, um, you know, have related to literature and and to national literature, and and this is something you you touch on in some of the chapters as well. Um, I'm thinking of the of the Yeats chapter is um, is nationalism and the project of mm-hmm. nationalism in literature. Of course, you know th- that's a, a critical project that has existed at various points in in human history. Is to is to use literature and, and other arts um, as, mm-hmm. um, you know, is basically to argue for a kind of national consciousness or a national, you know, Volk or something like that. And, or as an expression of some underlying, um, uh, some type of underlying reality about what the, the yeah. a national community is. And obviously that's a project with deep ideological um, and then real political consequences. And obviously what you're talking about is very, very different. And it's really about, you know, there's a lot of boundary breaking and, 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 and a lot of what you've been talking about today and empathy and so on. But I'm just, I'm, I'm curious if you see the, the project of the blue humanities and environmental humanities, I, I'm just curious about your thoughts vis-a-vis other kind of ideological projects, if that's what we want yeah. to refer to them as, that have kind of existed within a history of literature. And especially when we, when we clump literature into these kind of national style, you know, kind of categories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a great question. And actually, but of course, one thing we must always remember also is that nationalism is itself a comparative project. It's always engaged with, you know, thinking about other places and things, although Mm -hmm. it likes to think of itself as being insular. If I can use the word, it is by necessity always in relation to something else. And so there is, even in, well, especially in the histories of Irish nationalism, I'm talking to you from the United States. Those uh, diasporas of thought and imagination have been very powerful to changes that have happened at home. It's a great question also to think about the blue humanities, you know, and to think about the Irish coastline, because it really provokes and challenges you at the level of reading to think about what your points of orientation are. When you are imagining a sandy coast on Ireland's eastern seaboard, where's your point of comparison? It might be to the parts of the English Kent coast, which are falling into the sea. It might be some great work by a woman called Katie Ritson has done, thinking about the sandy shores of the Baltic, which might take you to that chapter then on Erskine Riddles, or Erskine Childers, I should say, and the Riddle of the Sands, which is in one sense a mystery novel, which actually provoked the British Navy into its arms race with the German Navy before World War One, but which led in its specific circumstances to its author becoming, you know, uh, executed by the independent Irish state that he fought to free. So it seems obvious, of course, that these complexities of allegiance and belonging in place cannot be explained by a national reading that ties one place off for another. 
the blue humanities, what they might do in a way that perhaps a post-colonial reading might not do. And this is maybe why I stress in the book or why I like to think about the term late imperial rather than post-colonial, is to think about conditions of attachment to the world that are mediated by these metropolitan dominant forms, but they can seep around them, they can get through and past them, and they can do so without themselves then having to be conditioned by these reactive national histories afterwards. So I suppose, you know, another practice of this freedom that I'm trying to think about is a freedom from the things that followed as reactions to that, which had been before, which sometimes, and again, this might be to do with my slightly misplaced Belfast childhood, has always been very sceptical or aware of one narrative being pasted on another and you just end up with this thick layer of impasto that doesn't help anyone. I'm much more interested in those thin washes of watercolour that might help you see through the paper than I am with painting everything over. Hmm. So, um, so one question, you know, and, and this is, this is like super interesting. And I really, um, I really like the idea of thinking of the blue humanities or environmental humanities in the context of, um, you know, other, other movements in criticism in the humanities, including post-colonial criticism and, and others and how they build on and relate to each other. I think it's a really super interesting question. Um, but, but one of the just broader questions, which again, maybe just to keep going in a bit of a, yeah, sure. of, of a spiral to, go, to, to take us back to the book so and the writing. you like a deposition, Mike? <laughs> exactly. That's what this, which I've literally yeah. never done and never will do. But. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Me neither, um, as you can tell. <laughs> um, but to, just back to the book and the, and the process of writing the book, I, you know, one of the ways that I, 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 can, I thought of the project as, as a reader was, you know, that, that you had kind of come up with a way of reading um, uh, this literature or some portion of this literature that, that, that you know, w you could draw associations with and do some work with that, that um, wasn't maybe possible um, or as easy with other ways of reading. And you, you collected your works and, and, and then, you know, I can just kind of imagine you going through and doing this process. So what I'm curious about is what was surprising or unexpected as you actually did the work of, of, of writing the book? So you, as you noted, something like this is probably the work of many years of kind of thinking and writing other pieces and talking with others and engaging with the literature and with other uh, other, you know, other people doing similar work, but, but then there's the process of writing where you have to choose the, the, what you're going to, the, the works that you're mm -hmm. going to include. And you're, you've got your, you know, your methodology, which is this blue humanities kind of watery method of reading. And then you do the, and then you do the work of writing. So, so what was there in that process, something that you learned or about the works or about yourself or the, the themes of the book, um, that you, um, yeah, that, that, that was surprising or different. Yeah, and thank you for that. Actually, I love that idea of making a certain sense of text accessible, you know, and I think that's connected really well. Gesturing to the idea of freedom in the books, but that access that you are making legible or helping someone else make legible conditions or suggestions in the text that might otherwise remain invisible. And I suppose, you know, one of the most enjoyable moments, maybe not, well, surprising, but I went to look at, for years, I have loved going to the National Gallery of Ireland. And 
I'm one of those people I've always loved going to the archive and I love going to the miscellaneous boxes, the things that they can't categorize, you know, the stuff that nobody else really pays much attention to. Hmm. There is a fabulous box in the National Gallery of Ireland in the Jack Yates collection. And Jack Yates was a painter and illustrator, the brother of the poet William Butler Yates, and perhaps the more fun and entertaining character. <laughs> but there is a, a box is called Miscellaneous. And when you pull it out, it is from Brown Thomas, which is the pot shop in Dublin, still on Grafton Street. And it was his wife's box for her silk stockings which were long gone, but which was full of rubber bands, corks and bits of wood, which he had used as the rigging and structure of his toy boats, which he used to sail on the little stream outside his house when he really lived in Devon. And I thought, oh my God, that really, now that, that is almost like a deconstructed paragraph about the blue humanities there. Mm. I mean, it's sensational. It's, used the word naive earlier, it's innocent, it is of the moment, it is preserved, and it's all just sitting there in its own little constellation. And trying to reassemble the thoughts and interests and enthusiasms that would lead someone like an internationally famous illustrator and painter to have that in their wife's silk stocking box seemed to me, if I could do that, I would be creating a kind of architecture for people to understand the past world in a way that perhaps they have not appreciated. And then Jack Keats had collected these scrapbooks, which were one was a Greek language dictionary of huge big old books, such as a thing you might find in a charity shop now. And over years he would cut out things, he would make drawings, he would collect stamps. He used to go and buy what was then a very valuable commodity, but boxes of oranges which came with their own very delicate, beautifully drawn uh, wrapping paper and he would put all this together into these scrapbooks and you know they were there in the archive as jackets of scrapbooks and they didn't really make much relation to his paintings and nobody really thought much about them but every time I opened each page I thought my god that's like another map of the world here this is like a sequence of atlases like how did you come across a box of oranges and a stamp from South Africa and an advertisement for the Liverpool to New York steamer. Like, where did that all come from? And you collected it and you stuck it here. And obviously you didn't stick them all totally at random. I mean, they kind of, again, refract upon each other. So trying to tell the story of those scrapbooks was a kind of biggest writing challenge, actually. And in a way, that chapter of the book is a kind of experiment in writing to try and think, oh, well, if I could do that with these scrapbooks, then how then do I write about poems? How do I write about novels? How do I capture sensation in the text? And I think you know, that would be one thing I haven't said so far, but it's very important to me. That sense of feeling of a literary book. I mean, you read books because they give you a sense of the world. They do that through smell, touch, feeling. Criticism doesn't always do that. And I really wanted readers to think, oh, you know, not only that I'm feeling something, but feeling something, as so often in choice, makes me remember something, which in this current context makes me make a comparison, and that comparison makes me think something differently. And I think that's the kind of internal circuitry that I was trying to build. Hmm. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful contribution. It's, it's, it's a great way of experiencing um, all these authors, and it's a, it's a wonderful entry in, the, in the, the new and growing field of the, the blue humanities and the environmental humanities. So thanks so much for the, for the work, um, Nicholas, and thanks so much for the conversation today. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you.
Thank you, Mike. A total pleasure for me too. I appreciate it. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.